real estate bankruptcy shakes confidence in China, and consumers across the globe focus on lower-priced items. Motley Fool Money starts now. From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Dylan Lewis. Joining me over the airwaves, Emily Flippin and Ron Gross. Great to have you both here. How you doing, Dylan? Good to be here. We've got a sneak peek at what's next on the Vegas Strip, a check-in on China, and stocks on our radar, but we are kicking off talking about retail. Emily, Ron, big earnings week this week for retail. We saw results from Walmart and Target. We're going to talk about them in a minute, but one of the things I want to talk about first is just how are you guys looking at retailers this earnings season? Ron, what are you looking for in results? What are you hoping to see? I think a more significant return to discretionary spending for things, actual things, rather than just for experiences like travel, uh, which which is doing quite well. Prices still need to come down for that to happen, and consumers need to feel like they have the money to spend. And what worries me a little bit is we're seeing declining savings account balances and increasing credit card debt. Um, so that might put a little crimp in my my wishes for the coming quarters. But that is what I would like to see. Emily, what about you? What are you looking for? You know, it's funny. My my judgment hasn't changed just because the economy has changed. So when I look at a retailer, I look for two of the same things I always look for. Right? You have to sell relevant products, and you have to sell them to the right consumer. So it's merchandising and meeting the consumers where they are, which means you have to have the right products. And we're seeing now the right products, as Ron just mentioned, tend to be a little bit more necessary, a little less discretionary in times like this. And you also need to understand where your consumers are coming at from. Right? Are, are they coming in foot traffic? Are they doing curbside pickup or delivery e-commerce? Um, understanding where the customer is is vitally important. And from a lot of the maybe weaker results we saw from some retailers this quarter, I think it's fair to say that some management teams are stumbling here. Yeah, because inventory management is really key, especially when times are a little bit tougher and not just you know going along um, easily. Um, and so, if you are inventoried incorrectly, if you're merchandised incorrectly, it's going to take not only multiple quarters to dig yourself out of that, but the discounting and the promotional activity you're going to have to uh, undertake is going to really hurt your margins. Let's check in on some of the results from Big Box. We saw results from Walmart and Target this week. Ron, a seemingly strong quarter for Walmart. They beat expectations on the top and bottom line, raised their full year outlook. What's behind the strong report here? You are correct. They they really did put up a, a good quarter. It was interesting. The stock actually sold off, so go figure. But um, the numbers look solid to me, with revenue up about five percent, U.S. comp sales up six percent. That was slightly slower than earlier in the year, but it was above analyst expectations, which usually the stock trades more uh, on the basis of. Um, we saw 2.9% increase in transactions, 3.4% in the average ticket. Um, so, pretty good. E commerce up 24%, led by strength in pickup and delivery. Grocery, which Walmart shines uh, in, really a big part of the story here. Sales of grocery and health and wellness pro- products increasing. People staying away, as we said, from some of the higher priced items, the non discretionary items. But margins were up, inventory was down, adjusting 
compensating for losses from some investments they have. Uh, earnings were up 4%. And as you noted, they were able to raise full year outlook for sales and profit. They say they see modest improvement of sales of big ticket and discretionary items in the quarter. So maybe we'll see a trend follow through to the next quarter. A little bit of a different story with Target's earnings. In the company's second quarter report, it posted revenue below expectations and reduced its full year outlook for earnings, revenue, and same store sales. Ron, does that have you spooked at all? Well, the stock was actually up, so go figure on that one too. Uh, earnings were actually relatively solid and margins improved. So, all in all, I think a better than expected quarter, which is maybe what the stock responded to. Uh, but certainly some weakness, certainly some caution here. Sales down 5%, comp sales down 5%. Digital sales down 10%. So they continue to struggle. Some backlash continuing from the controversy that began in late May around their Pride Month collection of LGBTQ themed good that sparked protests and some backlash. They're still working through that. But gross margins were up really significantly because last year, as we said, they had to take a ton of markdowns, be really promotional to change their merchandising strategy around to things that people actually want. Did go figure. Um, so margins up significantly, and that was able to really flow down to the bottom line in a pretty nice way. And inventory levels are now down 17%. So th- that's all pretty good. They're being cautious. Sales were weak, so they're lowering guidance for the future. Um, I don't begrudge them that. Um, they see some good trends starting in August, so maybe they'll be able to uh, beat expectations down the road. But they seem to be at least on a better track than they were this time a year ago. Emily, these are two companies that I would generally expect to trend in the same direction and be subject to a lot of the same whims when it comes to economic forces and just the way that people are looking at their wallets and their spend. Any thoughts on why we're seeing different outlooks for these two businesses this year? I'd actually venture to say that they're two completely different businesses. I think anybody who is maybe in my age and demographic is aware of the fact that you don't go to Target unless you want to spend a lot of money versus my trip to Walmart. I'm trying to get in and out as quickly as possible, doing as least damage as possible. So there's an argument to be made that the type of consumer who is a regular Walmart shopper versus Target shopper could be a bit different. And I think that's why we're seeing this result is because Target has their merchandise has focused so heavily on discretionary spend. That's hitting them harder this quarter. But you know, I've been a big fan of Walmart. I've been a big defender of Walmart. I think their investments in e-commerce and tech have been incredible. Like I said, meeting the consumers where they are. Their curbside pickup has been a great boon for their business. But now, with, with some revised guidance, some price changes, Target's actually cheaper on a forward basis in terms of earnings, um, which is, is rare when you see this happen for these two types of retailers. So Target, despite the fact that they might be in a worse position in the near term, could be the better buy here. Yeah, Walmart benefiting from their focus on groceries for sure. As Emily said, so Walmart at 24 times forward earnings, Target at only 17 times. You're paying more for Walmart, which is currently a better run company. So that actually does make sense. But if you think Target's going to get their act together, 17 times could be quite attractive. And I will add that Target pays a 3.4% yield, dividend yield, while Walmart's only at 1.4%. So that could be another reason why you could be interested in Target as a stock to own uh, right around at these prices. 
One of the things I want to dig into before we move on to our next stock is just looking at some of the ambitions that Walmart has in the e-tailer space and in the online space. This is something that we've seen both companies invest in really heavily. Ron, they made some mention of their membership program, Walmart Plus. They made some mention of the online ad business. Are these things that you think of as kind of nice-to-haves for this company, or are these, at some point, material and part of the thesis for the business? I think at some point they become material. Uh, Walmart's advertising business, for example, was up 36% for the quarter. From a small base, though, it's not a huge part of what they do yet, but it could continue to grow. I don't want them that to dilute what they do. Um, I think some of Amazon's troubles come from stem from some of that part of their business. But I think over time, loyalty advertising will become a more meaningful part of the bottom line. We got a check in from a less familiar name, Adyen, and a look at retail activity as well this week. The Dutch payment processor fell 40% after reporting first half results that were below expectations. Emily, you follow this company pretty closely. What made the stock fall so much? Oh, what a brutal quarter for Adyen. And I will say, I think part of the reason why we're seeing the reaction from the market that we are is because this is a company that's based out of the Netherlands. They only report results twice a year. So, The reaction that we're seeing, you could almost imagine it as like two quarters combined. There's a massive slowdown in terms of revenue, especially their revenue coming from the the payments that they're taking in North America. Um, For reference, their North American revenue grew 23% in the first half of this year in comparison to 52% in the second half of 2022. So, Everybody's coming into this investment, right? Saying, well, we saw 52% growth in North America last half. What do we see this half? Probably a little bit slower. But did you think that growth was going to be cut in half again? Probably not. So that's very much just kind of knee jerk reaction we're seeing from the market. And it was combined with weakness on their bottom line as well. They continue to invest in things like hiring a lot of staff, especially those based out of Europe, which have been particularly expensive for them, putting them into tech roles. I mean, this is an expensive business that then saw their margins decline as well. So it was the one two punch of weaker revenue growth, probably thanks to rising interest rate, weaker consumers, pullback in spending from enterprises, and then the inability to control costs at the same time. This is an interesting business for us to look at because they are not in some ways directly related to what we see in consumer spending, but obviously all of their customers are going to be businesses that are subject to consumer spending, and so they're right there with them. They count some pretty big names as customers, Netflix, Meta, Microsoft, and we saw some commentary from management talking about how some of the cost-cutting focus that we're seeing from businesses means that they are looking at other players in this space. Are you worried, Emily, about them losing any of these big relationships as some companies are a little more cost-focused? Yeah, that's a great question. And I will say management kept using that word, optimizing. People are optimizing. And one of the benefits that Audien has to retain these larger customers is they have a little bit more of a tailored solution. They are not the cheapest player. They have never been the cheapest player. But they are one that are more able to integrate solutions for increasingly international operations. So when you're a large organization, it's vitally important that your your payment processor stays up, right? That that you don't have these issues with cross-border payments, these types of challenges. But the competition in this space is extreme. And I think investors, when they talk about the story, being overly focused on stuff like consumer spending is probably not the right narrative. And um, as an audience investor and somebody who follows this company, my focus is more around whether or not um, these kind of processing and settlement fees are likely to be commoditized. And whether or not they really do have pricing power associated with better settlement than other players. And I think that's where the question mark is for the thesis of audience long term. 
Emily, before we go to break, I want to ask you one quick question on the spot. I see a 40% drop, and I say, either this is a sign of trouble or a buying opportunity. How are you looking at it for this business? I haven't made up my mind yet, actually. I really want to dig my toes in and say, I see this as a buying opportunity. A 40% drop is is a pretty extreme reaction. But again, if you're if you're concerned that the company is just over spending higher interest rates, then yeah, it's a buying opportunity because that stuff's temporary. The, if you believe in the company long-term, they're still sticking around. But my concern is that this is true for all these payment processors, for anybody who's facilitating payments, whether you're based in Europe or the US or anywhere around the world, is that there could be uh, like structural decline to margins for this company. And that's what my concern is. All right, coming up after the break, we've got to look at the big picture in China and whether their woes signal trouble or opportunity for investors. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Dylan Lewis here on the airwaves with Emily Flippin and Ron Gross. In addition to the retail updates we got this week, we also got earnings from major tech firms in China, JD.com and Tencent, and the news that major property developer Evergrande will be filing for bankruptcy protection in the US in one of the largest debt restructurings ever. Emily, seems like a good time for us to check in on China. Yeah, investors are getting um, two different stories, I'd say, depending on which articles you're reading about China. Because if you just look at the results from some of their big tech giants, JD and Tencent, things actually look pretty strong. Now, admittedly, things were supposed to look strong. This is a country that's coming off of the COVID-19 pandemic still, so the comps are still relatively weak. But with the JD, you have this focus on consumer spending. And with Tencent, you have this focus on consumer spending for services. So you have the actual physical goods with JD, and then the things, the services with Tencent. And both of these companies had really strong quarters. JD saw an 8% rise in net revenue, which was mostly led by actually appliances and mobile phones. So that's hardware spending from consumers, right? So relatively strong from consumers in a country where the narrative has been that the economy is weak. And at the same time, Tencent also saw a massive uptick in their value-added services revenue. So this is spending on things like video streamings or games and, and online advertising. All of these things are ticking back up. So both of these, these companies have managed to expand their top line, expand their bottom line, but neither can get out from underneath the thumb of the broader narrative, which is with this overhang in the state of the Chinese economy, is this performance temporary? Is the slowdown still coming for them? Yeah, Ron, it, this is a cloudy economic picture, I think, for China. Maybe is a, is a, is a good way to put for it. Sure. There are, there yeah, are a lot yeah. of different indicators that we're seeing here. There was a major headline this week, as I mentioned before, about Evergrande, but that is just one piece of the macro picture in China. We've also seen headlines around youth unemployment, some concerns around deflation. What are you paying attention to as you're trying to make sense of what's going on there? I think the two biggest issues China needs to fix are the, the housing market and domestic spending. That domestic spending has been hurt by the rising unemployment, especially among young people. And interestingly, easy for me to say, China said it would stop releasing data on youth unemployment, uh, which was actually over on 21% um, most recently. So interesting, they're not going to report that. Um, you mentioned uh, real estate giant Evergrande filed for bankruptcy last week, a real estate developer Country Garden said it would suspend payments on some of its bonds. So there, there really is a lot of things reverberating through this economy. Companies in manufacturing, construction, export industries, they're all reporting weaker sales. The central bank is trying to cut interest rates. They're expected to lower the amount of reserves banks need to hold because they're trying to stimulate this economy. It's going to be a while here. This is not a quick turnaround. China, China stocks are down as a result of this, for sure. 
Yeah, it's worth mentioning that when you talk about Evergrande in the real estate sector in China, part of the reason why the GDP numbers look so bad is because real estate's around a third of total GDP for China. So when you have a big developer like Evergrande, you know, trying to restructure their debt, can't make their payments, um, that really does drive a lot of the narrative around economic growth. But I, I'll, I'll just again reiterate that consumer spending in China is still strong. Now it's not. Crazy, right? We're not talking about how it was over the last decade, but especially when you compare it to the U.S. counterparts. Now, granted, we're in a rising interest rate environment, but still relatively healthy in terms of consumer spending. So, I'm much more focused on consumers than I am about, you know, developers at this point. Yeah, and interestingly, what happens in China does not necessarily stay in China. There is certainly a concern that this bleeds over to other markets, including certainly the U.S. And I think we are seeing that across a wide range of companies, especially this earnings seasons. Uh, companies uh, in the chemical industry, for example, DuPont and Dow, industrial equipment suppliers like Caterpillar, all reporting some weakness coming um, from from this part of the world. Interestingly, those experiences we talked about, Marriott um, seems to be doing okay in China, but also Starbucks, Apple, their numbers were relatively okay um, from that part of the world. But we should keep an eye on this because um, as, as the second largest economy in the world, it certainly has implications. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about the two sides of this, the businesses that operate primarily in China and also the global businesses that um, are subject to a lot of the whims of what happens in the Chinese market. Emily, how are you thinking about companies that have a lot of exposure to China? I think we've seen a lot of companies that have exposure to Chinese manufacturing kind of diversify their manufacturing over the last five years for, for a medley of reasons. But there's still a large number of companies, as Ron just pointed out, that derive a significant portion of their revenue from sales made in China. And I don't shy away from those investments today. We're talking about one of the largest economies in the world. I don't think investors can ignore it in their portfolios. But there is a difference between buying a company like Apple that has exposure to China versus buying JD or Tencent. And that nothing against either of those businesses, but I think the narrative for Chinese companies is very much dictated by the actions of their government and, and how they're perceived politically in the world. That's driving value for companies. And when you see great quarters from, from JD and Tencent, I mean, Tencent had gross profit of 22%, massively beat expectations. The stock is flat. So if you're expecting for the fundamental drivers for these companies to react in the stock market the same way they do for US-based companies, I think that's maybe misgiven. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, global companies with exposure to China are fine with me from an investing perspective. You just need to understand that there's likely to be some sales weakness coming from China, and that's going to impact earnings and cash flow, and maybe what you are willing to pay for a company, at least in the shorter term. Pure play China-based companies admittedly aren't really my thing. Too much risk for me, too hard for me to figure out, although I am sure some will do pretty, pretty well. Emily, I'm curious, with a quick take on this one, um, are you interested in Chinese companies, or is this something that's kind of in the too hard bucket for you? I still hold many of my Chinese investments. I haven't added to them recently, mostly because of the uncertainty around their politics. All right, Emily Flippin, Ron Gross, we'll see you guys a little bit later in the show. Up next, we've got insights on a surprising category that's capturing experience spending here in the United States. Stay tuned. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Motley Fool Money, I'm Dylan Lewis. We've been seeing the trend of consumer spend switch from goods to travel and experiences, and that's helped fuel a massive post-pandemic rally in Vegas. Vici CEO Ed Petoniak has seen it firsthand, 
His company owns major Vegas properties, including Caesars Palace Las Vegas, MGM Grand, and the Venetian Resort. He sat down with Motley Fool Money's Deidre Willard to talk about what to expect next on the Las Vegas Strip, why wellness is an increasingly interesting category for experienced spending, and what good real estate deals look like in this environment. We last talked back in 2021. Vici has grown so much since then. What would you say is the biggest difference between now and then and the growth in your real estate portfolio? <laughs> I got to tell you, uh, Deirdre, so we, we're five and a half years old since our IPO, and it I got to tell you that years here at Vici feel like dog years. <laughs> Two years ago feels like eternity ago. Uh, at the time I would have talked to you, we would have been collecting maybe $1.4 billion of rent a year, $1.5. We're on track next year in 2024 to collect almost $3 billion of rent. When I spoke to you, uh, we had definitely announced our Venetian acquisition, which yes. we announced around March 1st, uh, 2021. And then we announced, I don't know when we spoke, Deirdre, if we had announced our MGP acquisition, which we announced around this time in August of 2021. Um, those were two truly transformative uh, transactions. Not only did they nearly double our size, but they greatly expanded our presence on the Las Vegas Strip. Uh, before those two acquisitions, we had two assets on the Las Vegas Strip, Caesars Palace Las Vegas and Harris Las Vegas. Today we have 10 properties in the Las Vegas Strip. And that's probably one of the biggest transformative elements in not only the scale of our portfolio, but also the quality of our portfolio, given the quality of those assets especially when combined with the incredible quality of the MGM regional assets that we have uh, acquired through the MGP transactions. So greatly increased scale, greatly increased quality. Uh, and obviously, since we last spoke, we've also gone into the S&P 500 and become an investment grade credit. So it's been a very transformative two years. Yeah, it certainly has. And part of the transformative story there is about Las Vegas. And you you and Vici have kind of bet on Las Vegas. It's been incredible to watch that city bounce back. You've got domestic travel, conventions are coming back, international is growing. You've got some land to play with. And I'm very excited to find out what you think Vici might do next with that. Yeah, well, first of all, Deirdre, you're right. Uh, Las Vegas came roaring back once it really fully reopened after COVID. In fact, I, I think it's safe to say Las Vegas has probably been the busiest place on earth for the last year or so. And as we look forward, we're very excited about Las Vegas continuing to continue to broaden and deepen the experiential offerings that it, that it offers forth every single day of the year. Um, obviously, we talk a lot about the residencies, whether it be Adele or Lady Gaga or Bruno Mars or Usher or others, but we also talk obviously about an ever-expanding uh, food and beverage or culinary scene. The other big news in recent years is the arrival of professional sports. First with the Las Vegas Golden Knights in 2017, just won the Stanley Cup championship this spring. The arrival of the Las Vegas Raiders a couple of years ago, uh, the expected arrival of the Oakland A's, and a whole lot of talk out of the NBA, led by the commissioner himself, Adam Silver, that Las Vegas will be one of the next growth cities for the NBA, and will also happen to be the location of the first in-season tournament Final Four for the NBA this December. And that's never mind F1 and the Super Bowl in November and February, respectively. But when it comes to sports, what we're particularly excited about is the fact that you can now envision what we call the sporting triangle of Las Vegas. 
that is formed by Allegiant Stadium, where the Raiders play, T-Mobile Arena, where the Golden Knights play, and the A Stadium, which will sit uh, where just about where the Tropicana Casino sits right now. If you draw a triangle among those three locations, we own all the land and buildings, virtually all the land and buildings within that triangle, and MGM operates them. And MGM is working on some very powerful ideas in how to intensify and densify the experiences that can be offered within that triangle. And we're very excited about supporting MGM in that effort. I love that because it it sort of highlights the fact that Vici is moving on from being just the, you know, it's been sort of known as, as the gaming REIT, but you're really involved in some other things that are much more experiential now. Certainly the sort of is part of the revitalization of Las Vegas that way. But I want to talk about your news with Canyon Ranch because I find this fascinating. Uh, Vici has provided equity investment and mortgage financing but I found what was really intriguing here is the agreement centers on converting other properties potentially into Canyon Ranch properties. So you've got this this really powerful uh, luxury brand. You've called it a generational opportunity. That sounds like a long-term investment in the brand. Is, is that what you're seeing here? Yeah, it, it is the definition of a long-term investment, capitalizing on long-term trends. Canyon Ranch has been around almost 50 years, first in Tucson uh, around 1980, then in Lenox around 1990. And it has become one of the leading brands in the world when it comes to holistic wellness and life enhancement, and yet with only those two full resort locations. There will be a third we're helping to finance, uh, coming soon, next couple of years in Austin, Texas. But exactly to your point, Deirdre, we think that the Canyon Ranch economic model is so powerful that if we can transport that model to conventional resorts that have high conversion potential uh, to Canyon Ranch resorts, we really open up the map for Canyon Ranch, both domestically and globally. So, Ed, I'm really interested in the relationship with Canyon Ranch because you've got luxury wellness there, very powerful brand. You've also got this partnership with Great Wolf, which is sort of, you know, entertainment, kids, fun, water slides. Why are these types of deals attractive to Vici right now? I, they're attractive, uh, Deirdre, uh, for both, if you will, cultural reasons and demographic reasons. The cultural reasons are have to do, in the case of Cannon Ranch, with the fact that wellness is really, really becoming a more powerful force in, in everyone's lives, not only of the baby boom generation, of which I'm a member, but younger generations as well. In the case of Great Wolf, it is, it is a cultural element, a bedrock cultural element that kids love to play in water. And you could all almost think of Great Wolf being kind of like Canyon Ranch for kids, right? Because kids feel really well when they get to play in water the way they do at Great Wolf. So it's, again, it's tying into the way people want to, to live and play for decades to come. And I think both brands, Great Wolf and Canyon Ranch, tie into that. Well, I want to talk about something else, too. You've deepened your footprint in Canada recently with four casino properties in Alberta. I was curious, is this a case of sort of the right opportunity at the right time, or are you looking into more international expansion? 
It's really both. Um, they were the right opportunities at the right time, but they were also part of a deliberate international expansion strategy that you'll see us undertake over the next few years. We believe that Canada is a, a fundamentally good place to invest. It's somewhere I actually lived for 16 years. I know it well. Alberta happens to be a great place to do business. But we're also very intrigued with the UK, Europe, Australia, and New Zealand. And so, again, we will be both opportunistic in the way we were in Canada, and we'll also be strategic in terms of the way we grow into these countries. So thinking about the, the Canyon Ranch and the Great Wolf properties, would you be considering working in partnership with those brands as they expand, perhaps internationally? Very, very much so. And we think both of them, in fact, have very compelling international expansion opportunities. Neither of them, or I should say, both of them have offerings that are really not exactly replicated by competitors or other brands uh, in international markets. So when you're looking at opportunities, what is it appealing about a potential, about a region or a city that kind of feels like it might be the right place for, for that type of thing? I would say the fundamental issues are have to do with what are the forecasts for for demographic, cultural, and economic health in those regions, whether the, whether they be domestic or international. Um, you want to know that there's going to be a certain level of prosperity, a certain level of human energy, and a certain ability, both economically and, and if you will, psychologically, to engage in discretionary experiences, which is what the uh, creators of our experiences are all about. Yeah, I find, I find that interesting. As, as Vici moves beyond Las Vegas, you're sort of entering into smaller markets, different types of markets. So it seems like it's a little bit different than, than where you were in the past. Yeah, that's true. And I would say that we're sober about the fact that Las Vegas is an ecosystem unto itself and that we can't expect and shouldn't expect all of our investment activities to be of a scale, a magnitude, and an impact with what we can achieve in Las Vegas. We can invest in really great experiential properties occupied by really great experiential operators outside of Las Vegas, and we just have to accept the fact, and we gladly accept the fact, that the economics of those properties <laughs> just simply aren't going to rival those of the Venetian MGM Grand, Caesars Palace, or Mandalay Bay. It would be hard to rival those, absolutely. But when we talked two years ago, we talked a little bit about the growing legalization of gaming and sports betting. That has only increased since then. You've got properties outside of Las Vegas that are involved in, in gaming. How have those changes impacted Vici? The I think the real benefit of online gaming, but in particular sports betting, is that Sports betting has given gaming operators a chance to engage a younger audience in a way they've never had the opportunity to do so before. Sports is one of the two great national conversation topics. Weather is the other one. And gaming operators through sports betting have had a chance to engage a younger demographic that was really vital to the COVID recovery because younger people returned to out-of-home experiences sooner than older people did. And so both regional gaming in Las Vegas came back quicker, more powerfully, because of this newly engaged younger clientele that had been accessed through that younger clientele's avid, avid interest in sports in all of its forms and in all the ways they can engage with it, whether it be viewing or betting.
golf is part of the Vici property portfolio as well. How are you thinking about the long-term value of golf properties? Is there still going to be ongoing demand for, for golf? Yeah, so um, when we invest in golf the way we have with Cabot, we're investing in a very particular kind of golf. It's what we call pilgrimage golf, Deirdre. And Cabot is in the business of making golf places and operating golf places we believe are going to endure for generations to come, much in the way Canyon Ranch will endure for generations to come. And in doing so, they're really following the model of famous golf places like St. Andrews, like like Pebble Beach, like Pinehurst, where you're creating a destination of such rarity that you will be creating a place that remains popular no matter the economic cycle or no matter the larger trend waves that golf on a holistic basis may go through. That makes sense. Well, thinking about the future, I know you're always looking for good deals. You've got, you always seem to have great cash available to when you're ready. What do you think constitutes a good deal in this market? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's getting harder to know day by day, Deirdre, because the equity and the credit markets especially have been so volatile. Um, we saw that last week with the 10-year, the U.S. 10-year Treasury. You know, I think it moved almost 20 or 30 basis points in a week. Th- these are moves that are really hard to get your head around, and it makes it hard to predict and forecast exactly what's going to be a good deal and what will prove not to be a good deal. Um, but you are right. We have a lot of liquidity. We have a lot of uncertainty forward equity. We have a lot of cash. It does give us firepower at a time when a lot of others don't have firepower. So we use it carefully to make sure we're buying great real estate, occupied by great partners on terms that create shareholder value. Motley Fool Money doesn't have a Vegas residency yet, but you can catch us on the radio weekly and every day in your feed, wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're looking for stock ideas, we've got a report. Five stocks under $49 for free at fool.com slash report. That's right, five stock picks totally free at fool.com slash report. Coming up after the break, Emily Flippin and Ron Gross return with a couple stocks on their radar. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Dylan Lewis, joined again by Emily Flippin and Ron Gross. We've got stocks on our radar coming up in a minute, but first, we have to talk food. We always talk food in the D segment here. This week, activist investor Starboard Value announced a 9.9% stake in Outback Steakhouse owner Bloomin Brands. Ron, Starboard has a history of restaurant brand turnarounds, notably Olive Garden owner Darden Restaurants. You think they've got the recipe for something good here? <laughs> uh, Starboard Value, who I worked with quite a bit back in my hedge fund days, they're very good at what they do, um, and they have strong experience in the restaurant sector. As you mentioned, Darden, for example, where they cut costs, increased efficiency, sold more alcohol. They famously went after the quality of the breadsticks and the fact that they were bottomless over at Olive Garden. Um, so they know what they're doing. They also were involved with Papa John's in 2019. Bloomin has been a tough nut to crack, so to speak. Um, Janet Partners went after them twice. My fir- former firm, Barrington Capital, went after them uh, back in 2018. 2018. Um, so no activist has really gotten in there and uh, increased shareholder value in any significant way. 
but I think Starboard Valley is going to give it a shot. It's unclear what changes they want to push for right now, but we'll see, certainly keep an eye on it. Only nine times uh, forward earnings, so the stock is not cheap. Uh, is cheap, and if they can get something done, this could be interesting. Personally, I think I'm happy to pay $11 for a Bloomin' Onion instead of $2 billion for roughly a 10% stake in Bloomin' Brands. Uh, <laughs> Emily, is there another restaurant or fast food brand that should embrace the Bloomin' way of a menu item as the parent company theme name? Yeah, like as long as you don't touch the Bloomin' Onion, I think all the investors are going to be okay. But I will say, you know, Taco Bell, I have, I have beef with Taco Bell. <laughs> Nobody goes to Taco Bell for the tacos. You 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 really need to rename like name it Crunch Wrap Supreme Bell. I don't know Quesarita Bell, but Taco Bell is that's that's bad. Burrito Bell would be better. <laughs> Burrito Bell. There's an opportunity there. You can't change iconic names like McDonald's, Wendy's, and White Castle. Tell you nothing about the fact that they're burger joints. But the ship has sailed. We're not we're not going back to the drawing board on those guys. Yeah, you already know. Uh, all right, let's get over to stocks on our radar. Our man behind the glass, Dan Boyd, is going to hit you with a question. Ron, you're up first. What are you watching this week? Oh, Dan, you're going to love this one. Courtesy of my friends over at our Firecrackers service, it's Aztec Industries, A-S-T-E. It's a relatively small company, only $1.1 in market cap, produces equipment for a variety of industrial services, including road improvement and production. They make mining industry equipment, they crush rocks, and then they have an asphalt and concrete product line. They currently have record sales, improving earnings, as they become more efficient. The Biden infrastructure bill is going to help them. There's going to be $110 billion put to road repairs over the next five years. I need to dig into valuation a bit more because it looks cheap at 16 times forward earnings compared to the market, but not compared to similar industrial companies. So I just want to make sure I know what I'm getting there when I, if I decide to pay this price. Only has a 1% yield, but for dividend investors, not too bad. Dan, a question around what sounds like a classic Ron Gross stock, Aztec. I have a theory that Ron Gross, when he was about four years old, <laughs> went to, uh, near a construction site and saw all the people working and all the machines and said, you know what, that's what I'm going to follow. That's what I'm going to be interested in for the rest of my life. <laughs> that's what I'll never do, but I will be interested from afar. What kid doesn't love big trucks? Exactly. I mean, come on. That's, that's a classic toy. Stuff. Emily, what's on your radar this week? Yeah, to the contrary, big trucks always just kind of gave me a headache. So I'm looking at a completely <laughs> different business this month, and that's NICE. Uh, the ticker is literally N-I-C-E. Um, they're kind of like a call center as a service business, but also has some cloud-based enterprise solutions, mainly aimed at things like compliance and public safety. Um, I always describe it as sort of like a jack of all trades, master of none, but they had a really strong second quarter. They had revenue rising 10%, earnings rising 33%. They even raised guidance. But of course, what did the market do? It crushed them. They did not raise guidance enough, which implies that there's going to be a slowdown in the back half of the year. But they have really nice tailwinds. They continue to actually integrate and um, actually commoditize. So, like they're they're monetizing the value from AI from their call center options. So, strong business, just some temporary weakness. Dan, a question about Nice. You know, I'd never heard of this company, and now learning that they're customer call centers as a service. I mean. Like wow, I, I can't I can't talk about how incredibly interesting this company is, Emily. Thank you so much for bringing it to my attention. If it makes you feel any better, they actually got started um, in Israel as some former army members actually focused on things like financial crime and compliance. So it's a little bit more interesting than what you're probably imagining. 
Dan, I think I know already, but which one's going on your watch list? Big trucks for the wing. Let's go Aztecs. <laughs> Emily Flippin, Ron Gross, thanks for being here thanks. and bringing your stocks this week. Thanks, Dylan. That's going to do it for this week's Motley Fool Money radio show. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.